You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. <clears throat> okay. Um, Capitol Hill was absolutely nuts <laughs> this week. Uh, the good news, a government shutdown has been averted. The bad news, um, name-calling, kidney punches, a near fist fight in the Senate, and a Republican member of Congress who the Ethics Committee says should be investigated by the Justice Department. What on earth? <laughs> Joining me now, Washington Post congressional reporter Mariana Sotomayor. <laughs> Mariana, welcome back to First Look. Thank you. What a time. (laughs) Yeah, what a time to be alive. So um, the deal to keep the government open, uh, we're going to get the serious stuff out of the way first. The deal to keep the government open um, finances roughly 20% of the federal government through January 19th and the remaining 80% until February 2nd. So they've kicked the can down the road to early next year. How likely, though, is it that the House will be forced to pass appropriation bills that originated in and passed out of the Senate on a bipartisan basis? That is the big question. And listen, I've been talking to a lot of House Republicans, and they know that this just tees up an incredibly difficult fight for January and, of course, February, where by February we can see a complete government shutdown. This new two deal to day to tier however people want to describe it approach is actually pretty significant for mike johnson the new speaker it was his proposal kind of blending and compromising what house republicans really wanted but again even though republicans were able to pass it it completely irritated the far right who have now put johnson on notice for all of these fiscal fights that will be coming up. Of course, the Senate passed this deal because they said, why not? We don't want to see the government shut down, even though this is a weird two-tier approach. But right now, there's only a couple weeks in December, of course, before the Christmas holiday, and only several weeks until that first January 19th deadline. And what Republicans, Democrats want to see are House and Senate appropriators meeting, discussing, and trying to create these compromise bills that the Senate has already more or less marked up in a a bipartisan basis. We just haven't seen that happen in the House. So, you know, even to your point, if the Senate were to pass a significant number of their appropriation bills, it ultimately comes down to Speaker Johnson. Does he put those compromised bills on the floor? And what does the far right do? We have already seen Johnson decide to kind of circumvent the far right's demands because they were going to sink the short-term extension funding bill. He said, we're going to try and pass this in a different way with the help of Democrats. He a bipartisan solution. That's why you see the government funded now. But that far right, when they get mad, we've seen what they've been able to do in the past. Right. And so on that point, because as you pointed out, Speaker Johnson has been able to avert a government shutdown by basically by doing the same thing his predecessor, Speaker McCarthy, did. And that was rely on Democratic votes, a lot of Democratic votes. So 
you say the far right has put Johnson on notice, but are there rumblings that Speaker Johnson could very well meet the fate um, of now former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, even before we get to that first of the two-tier deadlines? So not yet. There is a marked difference of how the Freedom Caucus and a number of other far-right members view Johnson. They very much understand that he came into this job with only three weeks until that government funding deadline. So they knew they likely wouldn't get what they wanted. However, they wish to have seen Johnson incorporate more of their demands, which were way more spending cuts, even though the Republicans are already addressing that through the appropriations process, you know, funding border security. Those discussions are ongoing. And listen, when I've talked to a number of those members, they will say Johnson is honest. He does not lie to us. And that is a personality difference from McCarthy, where many members know that even if he made a promise, he wasn't going to keep it. But again, to your point, McCarthy and Johnson literally just did the same thing. Introduce a bill that funds the government at current fiscal levels for just a couple more weeks and have Democrats help to pass it. That is exactly what triggered the motion to vacate for McCarthy. But it wasn't strike one. So some Republicans say what Johnson just did is strike one, kind of hinting, you know, that a, a couple more strikes and he could be out. I actually tried to ask McCarthy about this, pointing out a, a bit of a double standard by the far far right. And it was actually seconds after he had elbowed punch Tim Burchett. <laughs> so I did not give get much of an answer from McCarthy. He kind of just shrugged at me. Kind of like it's just another day. Well, let's talk. Uh, good. I'm glad you brought up the, L, the 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 kidney punch because I mean you you had a story this week about stunning lack of decorum uh, at, at the Capitol um, with McCarthy being uh, accused of elbowing Congressman uh, Republican Congressman Burchett of Tennessee, while um, Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma challenged. Now this is chutzpah challenging the president of the Teamster, <laughs> Teamsters to a fight while, the, the, while Sean O'Brien, the president of the Teamsters, was a witness at a hearing, uh, a Senate hearing. Has everyone lost their minds up there? <laughs> up there? Is this the new normal? I hope it's not the new normal, but ever since I've started covering Capitol Hill, something that you hear is members of Congress, whether it's Senate or the House, should not be in session for more than like six weeks. The moment that you cross that threshold, you're already probably thinking someone's gonna get yelled at, hurt, something. So the mm -hmm. fact that the House had in particular been in session for 10 weeks, I was not surprised to see the fireworks start to go off. And many people on Capitol Hill were thinking, oh my gosh, everyone leave. Even Speaker Mike Johnson said, members have got to go. We gotta fund the government because this place is a pressure cooker and that he had no idea that seconds before Burchett and McCarthy kind of got into it. So, you know, you hope it's not the new normal, but this has, this is not the first time we have seen things like this happen. And it's unfortunate, honestly, after January 6th, we've seen many more confrontations among house members in particular. And I will say, you know, you ask reporters who have covered Congress, much longer than I have. And this idea that of partisanship, right? We, sh we shouldn't be working with the other side, seeing the other side as the enemy, that has only emboldened some members to just 
con- have these confrontations. And, and that is not good. It's obviously not good for policymaking, finding consensus, but it really is demoralizing to many members. And I would not be surprised. We've already kind of started to see it on the House side, the number of retirements that we mm. might see after the holidays, because a lot of members are going to be going back, talking to their families and asking, is this worth it? Is it worth it for me? Is it worth it for us? Um, <laughs> uh, George Santos, Congressman Santos of uh, New York, uh, the ethics report um, that came out had a, a lot of words in it that I never words. thought I would see in, um, well, ever. <laughs> Botox. Hermes, Ferragamo, OnlyFans. I mean, w- folks, just go read the ethics report, Mariana. What is the likely? He, now, Congressman Santos, almost immediately after the ethics report came out, he put out this long thing on the platform formerly known as Twitter. And way at the bottom, he makes the big announcement that he will not seek re-election in 2024. My question to you is, will George Santos be one of those people who comes back from the Thanksgiving break and announces, actually, I'm leaving now? I would maybe think so, because if he doesn't say I'm resigning effective immediately, Republicans and Democrats in the House are going to take him out. There was this question earlier this month about expelling him because his New York Republican colleagues are so over him that they actually introduced that resolution. And the House Ethics Committee actually kind of inserted themselves into the conversation by announcing that they would release their report by today, November 17th. They obviously released it yesterday. That was to help a lot of Republicans and also Democrats who had concerns that Santos still hadn't gotten due process. Because if they were to have expelled Santos and if they expel him next month, he will be the first lawmaker in the House's history to have been expelled without having actually been convicted of a crime. Obviously, we know he's under investigation, but there's just so many things that he has done. And even for the Ethics Committee to say it wasn't worth even talking to him because we knew that he was not a credible witness because he lies all the time. I mean, there is just so much, yes, annoyance with Santos whether it is Republican or Democrat, that we have already heard from a number of Democrats. They will be introducing privilege resolutions to expel Santos. But most notably, it must have just happened right at the top of the hour when the House was going to convene for a pro forma session. Michael Guest, he is a Republican and also the chairman of the House Ethics Committee. He was expected to introduce a resolution to expel Santos. And that's significant because usually when it's the chairman of the ethics committee, not to mention of the same party that holds the majority, we've already seen a number of of Democrats and also some Republicans who said, you know, I stayed out of the fight earlier this month. I voted against or I voted present to expel Santos now saying that they will do it. So if Santos doesn't come out and resign himself, the House will take him out. Um, And I did see, I, I, I can't remember where he apparently, Santos, announced he's giving some kind of press conference on the steps of the Capitol on, on November 30th. So maybe that will be his um, his swan song high C moment. I don't know. Washington Post congressional reporter Mariana Sotomayor, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Same to you. 
Now, we're going to keep the conversation going with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Associate Editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Max Boot. Ruth, Max, welcome back to First Look. Hi, thanks Great for having back. me. So, so I, I, I'm sorry to start uh, on the unserious, uh, well, compared to the Israel-Hamas war, but Ruth, since you wrote a column about uh, Congressman George Santos, let's pick up where I was um, leaving off uh, with Mariana. Um, you have a column with the headline, Shame isn't working. George Santos must go. It is in the in the the physical edition of the Washington Post today. My question is: Hasn't the level of um, lack of shame been in short supply uh, in Washington, and particularly at the Capitol, since the Trump years? Um, or and perhaps before. I mean, I think we've seen over the years the the ex the sad uh, experience and sad demonstration that that if you can just um, brazen your way through a tough period and some bad headlines, you can manage to survive it. And uh, and so the absence, George Santos is the current avatar of the complete absence of shame. And I apologize for this whiny dog in the background. I'm oh, trying our to extra correspondent. But while we're talking, this is, uh, this is Augie. Um, he has no shame because he is begging for treats right here, and I and I have no discipline, so I'm giving them to him. But back to Santos. I mean, he is the absolute epitome of the absence of shame. Um, but I think that this is one of those astonishing and unfortunately rare instances where, as Mariana was saying, um, the facts, the the unavoidable facts, are going to catch up with him and even his own colleagues, at least enough of them, I believe, are going to vote to expel him if he doesn't have the good sense to uh, leave on his own, of his own accord. And, and Max, you, you wrote um, uh, a different column, but I think, you know, pulls out 30,000 feet from what um, Ruth's very specific column is about. And you wrote, while we continue to obsess about external threats, particularly from Russia and China, the biggest menace we face is our own political dysfunction. Explain. I mean, I think this is the larger issue that we face as a country. It's much more the challenge that comes from within rather than the threats from without, whether it's Russia, China, what have you. And, you know, this, this George Santos situation is kind of a minor comical example. I mean, they're and I don't, it doesn't really get at the real issue, I think, which is, I mean, of course, there have always been grifters, and, you know, Santos is obviously a grifter. I think the real problem is the ideological division, the gridlock, the partisanship, uh, the animosity, and fundamentally the fact that so much of the Republican Party has swung so far to the right uh, that it makes it very hard to get anything done in Washington. And you see that, for example, with Tommy Tuberville continuing to hold military officers hostage, they can't get confirmed. That's leading to a readiness problem among our armed forces. You also see it with the fact that Congress is still not able to approve funding for Israel and Ukraine, two allies that are in the middle of wars that need our support. But you know their, their causes have been subsumed to these larger uh, partisan struggles in Washington. And I mean, fundamentally, my, most of my column was really focused on, on foreign policy and national security. What's fundamentally disturbing to me is that for the first time since Pearl Harbor, you have a substantial 
isolationist movement in the United States, uh, which is hostile to America's uh, leading role in the world to the foreign policy and the trade policy we have followed since 1945. And I think ultimately that may be our undoing, much more so than any external threat. Max, let me just stick with you uh, because, as we all know, President Biden met this week with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, Biden described the talks as, quote, some of the most productive and constructive discussions we've had. Were they, Max? I, I do think that they are productive and constructive within certain narrow parameters. I mean, it's not like we're going to talk away our fundamental underlying disputes with China. I mean, China wants to take over Taiwan. We don't want China to take over Taiwan. So those, you know, those kinds of issues, they're certainly not going to go away. They're not going to be resolved in discussions. But I think, you know, it is important to have discussions between the leaders of the two world's most, the world's most powerful countries. And they have shown some small progress on issues like restoring military and military talks or talking about AI or, or other issues. So simply the process of discussion, I think, is very helpful in limiting the scope of, of disagreement and reducing the chances of an accidental conflict, which are very real given the ongoing confrontations between U.S. and Chinese naval vessels and aircraft all over uh, East Asia. Let me follow up with you, Max, because with the Chinese economy in a downward spiral, with deflation, high youth unemployment, slow growth, was President Xi on weaker footing with President Biden than it might appear to the casual observer? Absolutely. I think there has been a noticeable change in Xi's behavior towards the West. Uh, he has kind of put wolf warrior diplomacy on the shelf. You might say he's kind of neutered the wolf warriors because right now, China is undergoing their greatest period of economic uh, weakness in, in decades. They're having a hard time recovering from COVID. And part of their issue is they're hurting because foreign investment is leaving. They're hurting because of the export controls the Biden administration is putting on semiconductors and high-tech goods. So for his own domestic tranquility, Xi needs a better relationship with the United States as well as with Europe, which are two of China's biggest trade partners. And so I think what you saw is a much more accommodating Xi than in years past when he felt like, uh, you know, the, the East is rising and the West is falling, which has been a popular Communist Party slogan in recent years. And, and Ruth, so when the, President Biden was asked if he still believed President Xi was a dictator, here's what he, here's what he said. Listen. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that, based on a former government, totally different than ours. What do you make of that, Ruth? I was really glad to hear that. The um, instinct of politicians is always to try to um, not be rude to the people that you've just met with, to um, kind of soft-pedal the differences. And I think that there, I, I was glad that President Biden was willing to call a dictator a dictator. And I thought this was a very um, good week uh, for the president in terms of foreign policy. And I would really um, braid together the two episodes that we watched this week, the um, humiliating spectacle of various things going on in the House, though I would say that the movement to reign on, among his colleagues to reign in Senator Tuberville is like another good uh, illustration of things going right in addition to George Santos. Um, but we see these follies of 
adolescent behavior, and I'm uh, really insulting adolescents here um, on the House in Congress. Whereas um, we saw two mature superpowers who are adversaries on many levels dealing with each other in responsible, serious ways uh, in the summit meeting with President Xi uh, in order to ameliorate and avert bigger problems um, and to recognize, as we did during the Cold War in dealings with Russia, that we need to find ways to avoid escalation and to coexist. And I thought it, it really underscored for me how um, big a change things could be between President Biden on the one hand and the prospect of a future President Trump dealing with China on the other. So, so Ruth, help me out with something, because it was just last month that President Xi emphasized what he called a growing, quote, political mutual trust with Russian President Vladimir Putin. What are we to make of, given that, what are we to make of the positive signs coming out of that Biden-Xi meeting you were just talking about? I, I think it's an, Xi uh, wants to have it multiple ways. He's certainly not the only um, dictator or only world leader who wants to have things multiple ways. But he recognizes for some of the reasons that uh, Max laid out earlier that he needs to um, both manage both relationships simultaneously, the very complex relationship with Russia and Putin on the one hand, and perhaps the even more complex relationship with the United States and for now Biden on the other hand. Um, one more question on this before we move to Israel, um, Hamas, Max. Uh, does Russia's experience in Ukraine the, these last 18 months make a China move on Taiwan less likely? I think it does, as long as the West stays the course. I mean, if we buckle now and cut off Ukraine, and I should note that aid to Ukraine is running out and it needs to be approved by Congress by the end of this year, where a lot of people are going to die in Ukraine and that blood is going to be on the hands of those Republicans who block that aid. But assuming that we do approve the aid and, and keep Ukraine as a functioning nation and, and Russia does not achieve its design of taking over Ukraine, I think that does send a message of deterrence to China that it won't be so easy to take over Taiwan. Ruth, um, switching now to the, the Israel-Gaza uh, war, President Biden said this week he is mildly hopeful the hostages um, taken by Hamas into Gaza may be released. He also said that he is deeply involved in those talks. And, and that's great. But should we worry that the president doing so raises the value of those hostages for Hamas? This is the constant tension that leaders and, and particularly presidents deal with when they're trying to mediate between the you know absolute moral and emotional imperative of getting hostages returned and not incentivizing hostage taking down the road and and raising the value of hostages. I think you know in this circumstance with women and children, um, with old people. Um, with the horror of this having gone on for so long, uh, the and and in particular with the fact that American citizens remain um, held hostage, the president really needs to um, do uh, and bring to bear what America can bring to bear in terms of getting the hostages released. I think all of the uh, some at least some of them, I think the signs um, are positive for at least some 
uh, interim partial inadequate, but still very much hoped for agreement. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to watch those hostage families on TV. I, my heart just breaks at each one of them. And you know, Max, uh, the Israel-Gaza war continues. And this week, President Biden said it will not end until Hamas is dismantled. But is that realistic? I think it is a realistic goal to dismantle Hamas control of Gaza. You can't necessarily eradicate the entire organization or destroy its ideology, but it is certainly possible to break its hold on Gaza in the same way that we helped to destroy the ISIS caliphate. That is certainly a possible goal. I think that is probably going to be a goal that Israel will eventually achieve, but it's going to be a long and bloody conflict. It's already a long and bloody conflict. And, you know, Jonathan, I've just been talking to some uh, retired Israeli generals this week who are basically saying, you know, don't go, don't get your hopes up for an early into this war. We're still in the early days. I mean, one general estimated it could take another six months of fighting in Gaza. Um, did those generals happen to say to you what they believe um, is the next step, like once the war is over? As I'm still waiting to hear from Prime Minister Netanyahu about what comes after for Gaza. Well, I think much more clear for them is what the tactical next step is, because it's pretty clear that with the Israeli Defense Forces having secured most of the northern Gaza Strip, they're going to have to pivot south and try to deal with the Hamas brigades that are located in the south. But in terms of what comes after the fighting, uh, I think everybody's crystal ball is pretty murky, and you're getting very mixed messages from Prime Minister Netanyahu, who on the one hand is saying Israel doesn't want to occupy, reoccupy Gaza. On the other hand, Israel, he says, will have a continuing security presence in Gaza. So it's very hard to know uh, what to make of that. I think uh, perhaps one possible end state would be something like what prevails in Area B of the West Bank, which is an area where the Palestinian Authority has political control, but Israel still has substantial security responsibility. So I think something like that may be a possibility, but it's really hard to know where we're, how we're going to get there because Netanyahu remains and his right-wing coalition partners remain very hostile to the Palestinian Authority, which is the only realistic alternative to Hamas in terms of ruling Gaza in the long run. Ruth, we have less than a minute left. I'll give you the last word on this. Well, you asked about um, whether it was feasible to dismantle Hamas. And I think as difficult as that is going to be, and I guess it uh, depends on what you mean by dismantling, I think it's the remantling, um, if I may, the ability of Israel and the region to find a a, a structure, uh, if if not a governing structure, a, a continuing mechanism for Israel to protect itself against a future October 7th and a repeat of October 7th. Um, given that Netanyahu, as Max said, has done his absolute best to um, neuter and uh, make the Palestinian Authority ineffective, that it's dismantling is going to be the least of it. Um, finding a mechanism for governance and coexistence going forward is going to be the really hard part. And I agree with Max, we really haven't even begun, Israel hasn't begun to lay out what that is going to be. And it is going to be so, so, so difficult. Yeah.
And with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Ruth Marcus, Max Boot, Max, I want those two gray chairs behind you over your <laughs> over the over this le left shoulder. Right. Have have a great talk weekend. to me offline. All right, so, <laughs> Jonathan, I'm leaving it to you to turn first look into a shop up. <laughs> have a nice weekend. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.